chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15. Psalm 15, and follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, something each and every one of us do on a daily basis, at some point in the day, usually in the morning, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is look into a mirror. Again, looking into a mirror is a regular part of your day. We don't always like looking into mirrors, do we? Because looking into a mirror can be quite alarming at times. Looking into a mirror can be quite revealing at times. Now, why is it that mirrors can be so painful and so alarming? Because when we look into a mirror, most often it shows us something that we don't want to see. Typically, when we look into a mirror, it reveals to us our blemishes. It reveals to us our imperfections. It reveals to us as our flaws. Looking into a mirror is probably most likely an altogether sought out or rather unavoided part of the day, especially as you get older. Um, But regardless of where you are, looking into a mirror is not something we all desire to do. Again, why? Because it shows us who we really are. It reveals things about us we don't want to see. And again, the Word of God similarly does the same thing. The Word of God exposes us. The Word of God reveals to us our flaws. The Word of God reveals to us our imperfections. The Word of God reveals to us our unrighteousness. The Word of God reveals to us our blemishes. It reveals to us how much we fall short. And looking into the Word of God as a mirror, oftentimes, if we're honest, is an avoided exercise for us. Because it can be painful at what it reveals. But ultimately, just like looking at a mirror in your home. And looking at the mirror of the word. It's good for you. It's good for you because it it does rebuke you. Which is painful. But it corrects you. It shows you the flaws. It shows you the imperfections. And it shows you the, the needed remedy. To fix those flaws. To fix those imperfections. And in Psalm 15, in very much so works, 
And it is one of those mirror-type moments. As we look at Psalm 15, David, the psalmist, is posing a question. He asks a question, and he gets an answer to that question. And the big question for us this morning that we'll see in Psalm 15 is, who is it that is going to dwell with God in heaven? Who is it that is going to stand before God eternally in fellowship with Him? Who is the person that has the right to enter into worship with God? Who is the person that has the right to enter into eternal fellowship, eternal blessing with the God of the universe? Who is this person? And the answer that we get is the one who is holy. The one who is holy in who he is has this right. The one who is holy in what he does, the one who is holy in what he says, will alone dwell securely in heaven with God. So as we work through Psalm 15, we're going to break it up into three sections. The first one is the question. We're going to look at the question that David asks. Secondly, we're going to look at the answer that is provided. Thirdly, we're going to look at the promise that David provides before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us, that it instructs us, that it corrects us, rebukes us, that it trains us in righteousness, that it points us to your Son. God, we pray that your word by your Spirit would do that this morning. God, we pray that your spirit would convict our hearts to see our sin and our need of our Savior. God, that your spirit would convict our hearts and comfort our hearts in the hope of the gospel and the hope of the work of your Son. God, we pray this morning that you are glorified, that your Son is exalted, and that we, your church, is edified and built up as a result of it. Father, we thank you, we love you, and in your holy name we pray. Amen. Psalm 15 and verse 1. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, growing up, I had always heard that there was no such thing as a bad question. Um, I've never believed that, and I still don't. Uh, For any of you that are teachers or work with people, you know that that is not necessarily the case, but you say it because it's comforting and encouraging. But what we have before us, it's not a bad question. It's a fairly simple question. It's a very simple question, but it's also an extremely important question and potentially the most important question you could ever ask or anybody could ever ask you. Who? O Lord, shall sojourn in your tent. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Again, many ask this question in some way or another. And most often they get it wrong. Most often they ask this question of themselves and they decide for themselves and it's a wrong answer. They go to someone else or something else and they provide a wrong answer. But here David asks this question. Who is the person that will dwell securely with the Lord for all eternity? 
Who is the person that can enter into communion and fellowship with God? David asked this question, and God gives us an answer. Before we jump in to the answer, let's look again more deeply at the question. David mentions sojourning in the tent or dwelling with God on his holy hill. And, and most of us might know where he's going with this, but if you don't, he's referencing the tabernacle. He's referencing the tabernacle and, and the Ark of the Covenant on the holy hill. This is ultimately pointing forward to the temple, but it could be just before the temple's actually built. And it's when the Ark of the Covenant is taken and placed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But David has in his mind this tent, this tabernacle, and this holy hill which represented God's dwelling place with man. It was a place where man would go to worship God, to experience God's glorious presence. It was a place of um, where sacrifice and worship took place. It was, a, it was a place, again, that symbolized God's presence with His people and among His people and dwelling and walking with His people. It symbolized God's security. It symbolized and, and spoke about God's um, inheritance and joy and covenant rest and all of these things. All of the... All of the Great realities of communion with God that his people longed for and hoped for. And ultimately this tabernacle and this temple pointed forward. It transitioned and moved forward into God dwelling among his people in the incarnation. And moved forward to God dwelling among his church by the Spirit. And this ultimately pointed forward and looked forward to the perfect day in the eternal in the eternal realm in the new heavens and the new earth where man would dwell with God where um, John tells us in Revelation 21 2 and 3 that behold I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. This tent. This holy hill. God's dwelling place with man was this place of worship. It was a place of comfort. It was a place of security. It was a place of blessing and joy, covenant rest, communion, and fellowship with God. Who is the person that can dwell with God in His presence for all eternity? Who is the person that can live with God eternally in heaven? Who is the person that has the right access this place of covenant rest and communion and fellowship. Who is this person? It's very likely that this psalm was used during um, worship, that worshipers would come forward. People who are seeking to worship God at the temple would come forward and they would ask this question. And the priest might answer in a similar way. It's very likely also that David is writing, penning this psalm as he sits around in worship. 
and observes the people around him who are coming to worship God. And as he observes the people, he sees the people that he knows, and he sees the hypocrisy of the people. The people who honor and worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's possible that David is penning this psalm as he's not only reflecting on the hypocrisy around him, but also the hypocrisy that he sees within himself. The flaws, the blemishes, the imperfections, the sins that he knows that he is guilty of. And as he recognizes those sins and those flaws and those imperfections of the people around him and of himself, he's begged with the question for them and for himself, and who has the right to come to this God in worship? Who has the right to come to this holy God in communion and fellowship? Who is this type of person who has the right to enter into covenant rest with God? Again, many ask this question still today in some form or another. Who is it that will dwell with God in heaven? Who is the person that will live eternally with God? And most often people get it wrong, but again, David asks here and God gives an answer. And he answers it in a way that's not typically expected. How does he answer it? Let's look at verses 2 through 5. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, and does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent person. So what kind of man has the right to enter into worship and communion with God? The holy man. The one who is holy in who he is. The one who is holy in what he says. The one who is holy in all that he does. This is the person that will dwell with God in heaven for all eternity. The writer of Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And Peter, in 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy. Now how holy is God? He is holy in all that he is, and in all that he says, and all that he does. Perfectly, utterly blameless, without sin, without darkness. Completely, utterly transcendent and set apart from us in his holiness. And in his majesty. He who called you is holy, so you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The man who would enter into eternal fellowship with God is a holy man. In word and in deed. Let's break down for a little bit. Because um, naturally, there's, there's a tension that arises as all that is said. There's a bit of unease as all that is, as all that is said. 
Before we deal with that, let's, let's look at verses 2 through 5 in a little more depth. Probably won't unease us anymore, but only compound it. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The one who would, that David describes as someone who enters into eternal fellowship with God is someone whose way or pattern of life is consistent. Consistent with this profession of faith. Is consistent with truth. There's an unquestionable devoutness to this type of person. There's an unquestionable sincerity to this person. There's an unquestionable integrity to this person. In their manner of life. In their entire being. This person does the right thing. Not just that he does good stuff or acts righteously. That's true. But he acts justly. He acts justly and seeks justice. Acts justly and seeks justice for for the well-being of other people. In the church and outside of the church. This person that would seek to, to commune with the Lord is someone who is, is faithful and consistent in speaking truth. What is expressed outwardly is a perfect representation of himself inwardly. That's ultimately what the psalm is getting at when it says speaks truth in his heart. That what comes out is the same truth that is within. Verse 3 moves on and, and develops this person's relationship to other people. Who does not slander with his tongue. And does no evil to his neighbor. Nor t- takes up a reproach against his friend. The person that David describes as dwelling with the Lord securely is someone who refrains from gossip. Who refrains from, literally you can translate the word, who refrains from backbiting. From going around behind someone else's back and slandering their name before others and among other people. This person does not gossip. They do not backbite. They do not seek to do evil, hurt, cause mischief, affliction, sorrow, in word or deed to another. They refrain from gossip. They refrain from hurtful deed and speech to their neighbor. Now, who is our neighbor? This question has been asked and answered so many times. Ultimately, the neighbor is who? It's anybody and everybody. If you're familiar with the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus has asked this question, and in some, who is the neighbor? Even your enemy, your closest friend, and your greatest enemy. Calvin puts it really well when he says, All men, all men to whom we are bound by the ties of humanity and a common nature. That's your neighbor. And that's your neighbor. And if that's your neighbor, you don't gossip about your neighbor. You don't backbite. You don't slander them. When you get together for a dinner party, 
when you get together for coffee with a friend, or when you go to work out at the gym with a workout buddy, or when you're at the water cooler, if they even have water coolers still, or whatever you go when you're at work for a break and you want to drink coffee or water. When you're in those scenarios, you don't gossip. You don't stir up mischief about other people. Look what he goes on to say. It says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This means that the, the, the holy person doesn't receive reproach against another. They don't receive it and they don't spread it. They don't bear it. When someone around you starts gossiping and slandering another person, The holy person, David says, is one who doesn't bear that reproach. Won't even bear to hear it. Not only will they not bear to hear it, but again, they don't spread it themselves. They don't bear it, and they don't spread it. They seek and strive to vindicate and clear a person's name first and foremost. This doesn't mean that you lie and you cover up the truth. But it means that you fight for truth. You fight for truthfulness about other people. You fight to clear their name. You fight to assume and think the very best of them. Whether believer or unbeliever. Verse 4. Continuing our relationships with other people. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord and who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. The Holy One. The one whom David pens and write about to us, who has access to God, this person rightly sees the ungodly and the profane. When the, when the rest of the world and when the rest of society sees a shameful and deplorable person, the Holy One, the one that that David is describing, sees that person for who they are. They see them as ungodly, and they see to it to not unite themselves to such a person. To not seek out fellowship with such a person. Does this not mean that, that we don't befriend people for the sake of evangelism? That's not what David is talking about, I don't think. I think ultimately he's setting up um, a comparison, preference to who we give allegiance and who we give fellowship to, who we give preference to in communion with. Look at what he says next. He says, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Relationally, the one who is holy the one who would dwell with God securely gives preference to, seeks, out, seeks to yoke themselves, to unite themselves with the person who honors, loves, and fears the Lord. 
This is the person they unite themselves to, regardless of how society sees and views this person. Whether they have a low estimation in the view of society or not, this person seeks to honor those people. And when the world and society seeks to honor and lift up a deplorable, shameful person, the Holy One rightly despises and rejects that person. I think this is ultimately what the psalmist is getting at. The third thing we see in verse 4 is that he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Swears to his own hurt and does not change. He keeps his word no matter the cost. No matter how much um, keeping his word might bring pain to him, might bring sorrow to him, might bring about affliction or difficulty to him, he keeps his word. He's consistent with his word. And if you follow along with all of these conditions that David has laid out, they all flow together, don't they? They all flow together. This man is... who is a holy man, is a truthful man. He's true to himself. He's true to the Lord. He's true to other people, regardless of what others might think or do. Swears to his own hurt. Keeps his word no matter the cost. Verse 5. The person who dwells securely with the Lord is the one who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Still, in the same context as how this person deals with others, but more specific, how they deal and treat others regarding their finances or their wealth or their possessions. The one that David describes who will dwell with the Lord, who will live with the Lord as one who doesn't use their wealth, money, or possessions against others for gain. Who doesn't see people in their weakness and take advantage of them. Second thing he says is that they won't take a bribe in an effort to condemn or shame an innocent person. This might be more fitting to a a legal or judicial context, but it's not exclusive to that. But the one David describes, the one who we have before us as a person who, who seeks justice for the innocent, who seeks to be truthful in all that he does, in the way that he handles his money, refuses to condemn and shame an innocent person, no matter what gain they might receive from it. Now again, as as we've worked through these conditions that are laid before us, I'm sure the unease you felt earlier hasn't been lifted. Because again, who is the one who will dwell with God? Who is the one who has right to fellowship with the Lord? 
Who is the one that will commune at his table in the new heavens and the new earth? It's the one who is holy. It's the one who is holy in all that he says and in all that he does and in all that he is. Let's look at the promise. Psalm 15 in the last part of verse 5. The promise for the person who lives according to these standards and conditions. It says, he who does these things, he who does these things shall never be moved. The person whose walk is blameless, the person who does what is right, the one who speaks truth and is consistent in speaking truth. The one who doesn't seek to harm his neighbor or bear a reproach or slander or gossip against his neighbor. The person who keeps his word. The person who doesn't take money at the interest of others. The one who doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. This is the person who will dwell securely with the Lord. This is the person who will go on unmoved who will dwell with the Lord unmoved. And this promise is twofold. Unmoved in the sense that we will, this person will securely dwell with God without fear of removal, separation, or being a cast off, a castaway. The person who does these things has assurance that they will dwell with God eternally without fear of God casting them off. This person is also unmoved in the sense that they'll walk through life with a sense of confidence and strength and steadfastness. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, as we look at these requirements for access to God, if we look at these conditions for us, to dwell with God, commune with Him at His table for all eternity in blessing and in worship. If we're honest with ourselves, this is not us. This is not me. This is not you. This is not any one of us. If you're unsure about that, let's go back to the mirror moment that you might have in the morning. Right? You wake up, you brush your teeth, you see yourself in the mirror. You see some blemishes, see some imperfections, you see some flaws. You put some makeup on, you cover that, you see some stuff in your teeth, you take that out, you floss, you brush, whatever you do. You see some gray hair, you cut it off, put a little just for men in, however you do that. Just own it, it's fine. Gray's cool. But you clear up what you see. And then you go and you open the Word. You look to Psalm 15. You ask the question, as David does, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And you look at the requirements. You look at the conditions before you and you resolve, I'm going to be that today. This is going to be me. And this promise for the one who do those things shall not be removed, that's going to be me today. 
So you put your shoes on. You get your stuff. You go out the door, and it takes 45 seconds or less for you to realize that this is not you. You get in your car. You get on the freeway. Someone makes you mad. Whatever it may be, right? And you're already bearing up a reproach against the driver on the left. You're already speaking evil about the person on your right. You get into, into the workplace, and someone is already gossiping, and you're already entertaining the gossiping. It doesn't take you long into your day to realize again that this is not you. Only the Holy One has the right to access God for all eternity. Only the Holy One. And this is not any of us. You cannot go into a place of holiness if you are not holy yourself. As Russell prayed this morning, he took us to Isaiah 6. And if you remember that moment in the throne room of God, Isaiah, right, a prophet of the Lord, is standing in God's presence, in His throne room. And the glory and the holiness of the Lord begins to fill the throne room. To the point that He looks around and He sees the seraphim. And what is, what is the response of these angelic beings? They're covering themselves and crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And how does Isaiah respond? I've walked blamelessly. I've done what is right. I speak truth in my heart. I've never slandered anyone with my tongue. I'm good to go. Standing confident. How does Isaiah respond? He falls on his knees and declares what? Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land among a people of unclean lips. I am not worthy to stand in the holiness of His presence. This is coming from Isaiah the prophet. Standing before the Lord, I am unholy, I am unworthy to dwell before you on your holy hill. In and of ourselves, what makes us think we are any better off than the prophet Isaiah in that moment? There is not one of us here today that as we look at ourselves in and of ourselves, who we are, the consistency of our actions and our speech that wouldn't have a similar response as Isaiah. We too would fall before him. Woe is me. I am undone here. I'm a man of unclean lips, unclean actions, unclean words, unclean deeds. Woe is me. So, what is the remedy? What's the solution to this problem that we're faced with? As 
someone comes to you and they ask this question, who will live with God in heaven? How can I gain access to eternal fellowship with God? Who is the person that can dwell securely with Him? How will you answer that question? How will you answer to the question that when you read something like Isaiah 5, or Psalm 15, and they say, that's not me. You say, that's not me either. So where do we look next? What's the hope? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. <clears throat> Romans 8, 1 through verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, the problem is what? is that none of us will stand securely before the Lord in confidence and assurance that we'll stand before Him welcomed and received in and of ourselves because intrinsically, within our being, there is no holiness. We do not fulfill these standards. We do not fulfill these conditions. We have broken God's law. And the punishment for that is death, is condemnation. But Paul is telling us that there is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law demands perfection. The law demands righteousness. But in human weakness and in human sin, we cannot fulfill the demand for perfection. So what awaits for us now? The law's demand for punishment. But Paul's telling us there is no more condemnation. Why? Because of Christ. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in Christ. And as you are joined to Christ by faith, as you are unified to Christ by faith, the benefits of His person and His work are accredited to you. Christ in His person and His work fulfills the law's demand for punishment and perfection. The law demands punishment for our lack of of fulfilling its demand for perfection. Christ fulfills both for us. 
He fulfills both for us so that when we, by faith in Christ, stand before the Lord, He will see us positionally as holy and righteous. He looks at you now in Christ, if that is you, as holy, righteous, justified. All that David has laid before us in Psalm 15. And we can go back verse by verse and see that Christ has fulfilled and lived out every one of those standards and conditions. Every single one of them. We need someone outside of us to bring us to this place of being holy. And this is Christ. Christ is the Holy One. Christ is our advocate. But it doesn't stop there either. God doesn't just bring us to Christ, forgive us, justify us, all glorious as it is. He doesn't stop there. It continues to get better. There's actual conformity now to the image of Christ. Look again with me at Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But those who are in the Spirit, those who are in the Spirit, who are given the mind of Christ by the Spirit, who are given the conviction of the Spirit, He is conforming us into the image and likeness of Christ. The Spirit, as He gives us the mind of Christ, we become those who can please God and truly want to please God. We can actually see growth in our own lives and development in our own lives as we grow in holiness. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 declares of this reality when he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The Spirit actually comes and gives us new life. He comes and He gives us new life and He reorients our affections and the dispositions of our heart, our will. He conforms our conduct. He begins to transform. He gives us an entirely new spiritual state. That old man that was dominated by the flesh is now new in Christ and is indwelt by the Spirit. 
He's conforming us to the image and likeness to Christ. He's actually making us fit for the day. Actually making us fit. Making us holy so that when we stand before God, we will stand before Him glorified by this work of the Spirit. So for us believers, how do we respond? How do we respond to all this? How do we respond to this question? And how do we respond to this answer laid before us by David? We examine ourselves. Examine yourself. And repent. And confess. Look to Christ. Look to His grace. Pursue Christ's likeness. Let the mirror of the Word of God expose you. Expose your sin. Let it expose your blemishes. Let it expose your unrighteousness. Let it point you to the righteousness that is in Christ. Let it point to you to the grace that is in Christ. And the hope that is in Christ. Be by the Spirit. I pray that all of us, as we examine ourselves and that we look to Christ and we, and we, we repent and pursue Christ's likeness, that the Spirit would help us to see God's comfort the comfort of the gospel. But it help us also to see the call of the gospel. The comfort of the gospel. It says, in Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are justified. In Christ, you are redeemed. In Christ, you do have the hope of standing blameless before the Lord and dwelling with Him forever. But also the call of the gospel It says, be holy, for I am holy. And that we would properly understand those two things and live in light of those two great realities and blessings. For the unbeliever here this morning, or the unbeliever that you are in close friendship with, maybe the unbeliever in your family, look to Christ. Look to Christ. You cannot, in and of yourself, by word or deed, fulfill the requirements of the law. You cannot. You cannot fulfill these conditions. Only Christ can. Look to Him. I remember last week, Jason said that Psalm 2, well really Psalm 1 and 2, is kind of the, the guide for the rest of the Psalms. And as I thought about that and looked back at Psalm 2, I couldn't help but, but see how right Jason really was. It's not surprising. But Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What kind of man will live with God in heaven? The one who is holy in all that he says and does. And this can only be true. These standards, requirements, can only be true of the person who is in Christ. Can only be true of the person who is being transformed into his image and likeness by the Spirit. Are you this kind of person? Is this you? Are you in Christ? Then be comforted. Be comforted. You will dwell with the Lord securely. You will commune with Him at His table. And when Satan tempts me or us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we will look and see Him there who made an end of all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died. Our sinful souls are counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb. Our perfect, spotless righteousness. The great and changeable I Am. The King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, we cannot die. Our soul is purchased by His blood. Our life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ the Savior and God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that we have in your Son. And we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in your Son and the hope that we have in your Spirit. God, that we will stand before you justified, righteous, holy. God, we pray that you would convict us of sin. That you would point us to your Son. That by Your Spirit, You would be conforming us to the image and likeness of Your Son. God, and that we would not refuse or hide or avoid from the mirror of Your Word as it exposes us and disciplines us and seeks to train us in righteousness. God, but God, we pray that by Your Spirit, we would humbly follow the call of the Gospel. That we would humbly pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. God, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, for your glory, for his namesake. Amen.